All right. <laughs> um, I get psyched about the subject of joy, which is my way of saying I'm, I'm probably going to preach long, okay? So I've got a lot of material to cover. I, I think probably more material than I usually show up here for. So you can pray for me as I, as I preach for us, right? Just pray for me. So I'm just going to dive right in, guys. I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes or 35 if you're lucky, pleading with you, encouraging you, and exhorting you that you should want, you should want to help us plant the city's most joyful church. And the reason for that is really simple, okay? Because the soul's enjoyment of God, the soul's enjoyment of Jesus is the most authentically Christian goal that any individual or any organization or any church can have. It's the most authentically Christian. For instance, going to church, we love it. But going to church is not authentically Christian. There are all sorts of Bible verses about wolves being at church. Wolves can even go to church. It's a chore for them, but you don't have to be a Christian to go to church. Likewise, reading the scriptures is not authentically Christian by itself. Even the enemy can read the scriptures. In fact, we learn in the Gospels that the enemy does read the scriptures. Satan literally quotes the scriptures verbatim to Jesus in the Gospels. The enemy can read the scriptures. Even obeying God by itself is not authentically Christian. In the book of Job, before the enemy tests Job, he goes to God and the enemy even asks for permission. In the resurrection, when Jesus returns, he is going to command the enemy to bow his knee and the enemy is going to bow his knee and that won't make him Christian. He will bow his knee, and it will be a chore for the enemy. So there is only one thing that a non-Christian can't do. One thing that the enemy can't do. The enemy can never enjoy God. And so the soul's enjoyment of God that's the key. That's what makes reading your Bible a Christian activity. That's what makes going to church an authentically Christian activity. The soul's, in, right, right there, the soul's enjoyment of God is what makes your thoughts, your words, your deeds, activities, and even this church authentically Christian. So guys, this is why. This is why our goal as a church is not we want to plant the city's most obedient church. We love obedience, right? We, we exhort it. We celebrate obedience, but it's not our goal. Likewise, our goal is not to plant the city's biggest church. We love church growth. We love evangelization. We love mission. We love when the church grows, but we're not saying that our goal is to plant the city's biggest church. Likewise, our goal is not even to plant the city's smartest church even though we love theology, we love doctrine, we love deep biblical knowledge, we're saying that our goal is to plant this city's most joyful church because that empowers all the other stuff. So that, 
Are you guys with me? That's the trail we're going down this morning. We want to plant the city's most joyful church, but that's a dangerous trail, okay? If we're going to go down that trail for the next 30 or 35 minutes, I'm telling you up front, guys, that on this trail, there's a lot of rocks, a lot of boulders, a lot of barriers, lots of places for us to sprain our ankles and trip. There's a high likelihood that if we're not in this together, this sermon is going to fall flat on its face and fail. So as we go down this trail together, the first thing we're going to do is some trail sweeping. Okay, I'm going to try and clear away some of these boulders. Get some of these misunderstandings out of the way. And I'm going to do that this morning for two groups of people, both thinkers and feelers, okay? So if you're a thinker out there, here's what we're going to do. Here are three affirmations and rejections of what we mean when we say joyful. Number one, we affirm that the baseline spiritual experience of the Christian is characterized by joy. But we reject, we totally reject that this joy is the result of circumstances or situations, right? Christians are not joyful because they have easy, pain-free, or struggle-free lives. Christians are joyful because they have Christ, period. Number two, we affirm that this joy is so utterly surpassing, so immeasurably rooted in Christ Jesus that it reveals itself in a beautiful plurality of ways. There's a plurality of ways that this joy expresses itself. So we totally reject, you guys. We totally reject that this joy is superficial, contrived, socially constructed, and needs to reveal itself in everybody as a chipper personality always. Heck no. No, we, we reject that. I'm telling you, some of the most joyful women, some of the most joyful men I know would never be described as chipper. Ever described as chipper. Instead, our joy is so deep and wide that it can and it does include incredible sorrow and even long seasons of sadness. So guys, if you're naturally prone to sadness and sorrow, you have a role in helping us accomplish this goal. Come, help us. Show us what it looks like to fight for joy when it's not your natural disposition. Number three. Man, I gotta move through these faster. <laughs> Number three. We affirm that joy in Christ is the right target of the local church's gatherings, practices, and communities. In other words, our preachers preach at the heart. Our musicians sing with the heart. Our counselors try to get at the heart. We're going to aim at your heart. We're going to aim at your joy. But we reject that this priority of joy in any way belittles the importance of obedience, hard work, and hard thinking. In fact, we believe that enjoying Christ makes those things possible. So that's for the thinkers out there. Feelers in the room. <laughs> Probably 50% of you. We got some work to do as well, okay? We've got some boulders to clear out of the way. Because it makes me... Um, it makes me really, really sad to say that it's really, really hard to fight for joy in Jesus for really, really deep reasons. 
if you're naturally a feeler. One of those reasons might be, I think some of you are, you've probably experienced this. Um, one of those reasons might be is because of the things that you enjoyed before you followed Jesus, right? Before you followed Jesus, you enjoyed sin or you enjoyed gossip, you were, enjoyed lust or you enjoyed lying. And so in your brain, after seasons of that, you have cemented this unnecessary relationship, but it's still cemented between joy and sin. So that even though Jesus has saved you and given you joy, when you experience joy in your heart, you think, oh, that's gross. Or that, that's wrong. I'm not, I can't feel, I'm not supposed to feel joy. Or maybe for you, experiencing joy in Jesus is really, really difficult because the world has belittled and mocked your joy. Right? Like, ever since you were a little kid or when you were growing up as a teenager, every time you got excited about something and you shared your joy with your friends or your peer group, they mocked it or poked at it or belittled it. And so somewhere along the way, as you continue to grow up and, and develop as a human being, you thought, fine, if, if every time I let my joy out, somebody's just going to kick it around, then I'm shutting it down. We get it. In fact, after this service, or after this sermon, we're literally going to sing a song together that says, Oh my Lord, I must confess, it's easier to be sad. Joy is hard, I've tried my best, but I can't force myself to be glad. If that's you, this sermon, I have had you in my heart, I have had you in my mind all week long, this sermon is for you. Are you guys ready to fight for joy? All right, let's do it. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? In John chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and <laughs> as is the way of Jesus, he, he's going to begin with kind of this little cryptic thing that he says. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while. And then you'll see me. And so some of his disciples said to one another, what? <laughs> what is this that he says to us? A little while, then you won't see me. A little while, then you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now, because Jesus is who Jesus is, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, disciples, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. In your hearts, they will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, but ask, and you will receive, 
that your joy may be full. You can have a seat. Okay. um, This is one of those texts in the Bible that will not open for you. It'll stay closed. It won't open for you unless you understand the context of it. And then, and then the beautiful thing is once you understand the context of this particular text, it will bloom for you. It'll blossom, and it'll bloom, and it'll open up in your life. So um, context. Here's the context. When Jesus says this to the disciples, he's in the upper room with them. He's just eaten with them. He's teaching them. He's served them. He's washed their feet. And the cross, is, the cross is less than 24 hours away. Jesus is saying these things, teaching these things, speaking these things in the shadow of the cross. And Jesus knows that in less than 24 hours, the disciples' lives are going to get really hard, like unspeakably difficult. They're going to abandon their Savior. Their Savior is going to be peeled away from them. Everything is going to be taken away from them. How in the world do you prepare people to endure long seasons of suffering, sadness, and sorrow like the disciples are going to experience it? Or to kind of frame it for us as a young church plant, how do you prepare um, a young church plant like ours to endure seasons of difficulty that are in our future? We've had a a pretty easy go at it so far. Not perfect, but a pretty easy go at it so far. But there is sorrow and difficulty in our young church plant's future. I don't know what it'll be, right? It could be division, we pray not. It could be long seasons of increased death and illness in the church. We don't know, we hope not. How in the world do we prepare as a local church, to endure those things. Well, listen to how Jesus describes this coming event. This is John chapter 16, verse 16. We'll have it up on the screen for you. Jesus says this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. There's this event that's going to happen. And again a little while, and you will see me. So what Jesus is doing right here is he's, he's purposefully and intentionally speaking cryptically, right? It's kind of like a riddle. So in plain language, what Jesus is saying in chapter 16, verse 16, is really pretty simple. He's saying, a little while, then brothers, I'm going to the cross. And then a little while longer, and you'll see me because I'm going to get resurrected. But Jesus doesn't come right out and say that because Jesus is he's gentle and he's tender. And he knows that plain language about the crucifixion would crush the disciples right now. It would crush them. Because how, how in the world do you tell somebody that you just spent three years with that you have eaten meals with, that you know their deepest and darkest um, secrets and and sorrows and joy. How do you tell people like that that you're about to go die on a cross? How in the world? Well, if you're Jesus, you do it gently through figures of speech. In a little while, I'm going away. Then a little while more, and you'll see me, which totally goes over the disciples' heads, right? Did you notice that in the text? The conversation that breaks out right afterwards? 
Well, let me, so let me clarify. I said totally goes over their head. I don't think it totally goes over the disciples' heads. Here's the situation. Um, the disciples, they, they huddle up over here after hearing Jesus say that. And what they do is they have a conversation like this. What did Jesus mean when he said a little while and then he's not going to be with us and then a little bit while? What is Jesus talking about? Well, I mean, what exactly does Jesus mean by a little while? What makes a while little? What makes a while big? What did Jesus mean in the original Greek? Here's the thing. Jesus is right over here. The answer sheet is right over here. They're in the same room. What's that tell you about this conversation? It's not an honest conversation. This is the type of conversation like where you, you know what I'm talking about, where you don't want to ask the source because you're afraid that your deepest, darkest suspicions are going to be confirmed. Jesus couldn't have meant that. No. There's no way Jesus could have meant that he's going to die, right? Why don't you just ask him? No, I can't, I can't take it. So they don't ask him. But Jesus is over here in the upper room. And he, I think he's looking gently and tenderly upon the disciples. And he knows. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're talking about. He knows that in less than 24 hours, he's going to the cross. He knows that in less than 24 hours, they're going to abandon them. And so Jesus gently, and he, he, wants, to, he wants to encourage them, and he wants to exhort them, and he wants them to endure. So to prepare them for that difficulty, surely what Jesus says is, all right, fellas, you guys got to suck it up, Right? So Jesus goes on to say, hey, life is about to get tough. So disciples, toughen up. Guys, it's going to get tough. Just do what I say. Just obey me. Surely that's what Jesus says, right? Wrong. He looks at the disciples, knowing what's in front of them, and he promises them joy. And ladies and gentlemen, for the rest of this text, what you'll see Jesus of Nazareth doing is laboring to describe this joy as compellingly and clearly as possible. He's going to describe it once. He's going to describe it twice. And then Jesus is going to describe this joy three times so that you don't miss it, mistake it, or slight it. First, Jesus describes the joy that he's about to give as an overcoming joy. This is verses 20 through 21. We'll have it on the screen for you. Jesus goes on to describe it this way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to feel it, guys. The whole spectrum of stuff. You're going to weep. You're going to lament. And the world is going to rejoice at what makes you cry. But even though you will be sorrowful, your sorrow will turn into joy it's like this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So it, it seems that Jesus, he, I think what he's doing is he doesn't want his disciples to confuse this promise of joy as a promise of an easy life. And so what Jesus does is he uses one of life's most emotionally rich and emotionally complex events, childbirth. If you've experienced labor 
or if you have experienced walking somebody through labor, you know that labor in the childbirth process is not an event of singular emotions, right? It's not just going to be smiling. If you can imagine the whole uh, technicolor, vibrant spectrum of human emotion, like all of those things pop their heads up throughout childbirth. There is crying, there is laughing, there's rejoicing, there is sadness, there's sorrow, there's pain, there's anguish. All of it rears itself up. In fact, there's nothing easy about childbirth. A mother loses almost everything in childbirth. She loses her hydration. She loses her blood. She loses her fluids. She loses her energy. She almost loses her life in childbirth. And in the end, none of these losses are ultimately working against the joy of that mother. So you'll experience it all. But not all of your affections, not all of your emotions are made equal. In fact, all of your emotions will end up in the end serving one, joy. It's kind of like Renee wrote that, uh, this verse back there on the chalkboard, sorrow to joy. There's a reason why joy is bigger than sorrow right there. Because sorrow exists to give birth to joy. This is not a promise that you're going to experience only one emotion throughout all of your life. Happiness, chipperness, no you're going to experience it all. This is a promise that those things have an expiration date. And joy doesn't. And so, at this point in the conversation, um, I like to imagine the disciples experiencing skepticism. Maybe like you're experiencing right now. Because Jesus feels the need to clarify it. So I don't know exactly what's running through disciples' heads. They've just been promised a joy that overcomes everything. I think what's running through their heads is, okay, um, I'll have sorrow, and like that'll be overcome by joy, and that'll be great. But will my joy be just like my sorrow? Like fickle and temporal? And will that joy end up passing away, and sorrow will rear its ugly head again, and that will endure and outlast my, my joy? Who's to say that won't happen, Jesus? So Christ continues to labor to make this joy as clear as possible to them. It's not just an overcoming joy. Secondly, he describes it as an indomitable joy. This is verse 22. We'll have it up on the screen for you. Jesus goes on to say, so also you have sorrow now when I'm taken from you. When you see your sin on the cross, you'll have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and then no one will take your joy from you. Jesus knows that like everything is going to be taken away from these disciples. Even after the resurrection, Jesus knows that the lives of the disciples are going to get harder. Everything else is going to be taken away from them. Historically, if you know what, if you know what happened to the disciples, um, they end up getting kicked out of their synagogues, booted out of their families. They end up getting rejected by society. They end up getting, most of them get martyred for sharing the gospel. Their entire lives are fickle and fragile and everything gets taken away from them. But you guys get this, right? Because everything in your life is kind of dicey also. Jesus knows that your family is your family is one drunk driver away from being taken from you. Jesus knows. He knows 
that your boss is one bad day away from firing you. Jesus knows that your home is one natural disaster away from being taken from you. And so Jesus promises you and the disciples, the world's going to take away a lot of stuff. The world might even take away everything from you, but I am giving you something that the world can never take away. Your joy in me. It's indomitable. And as though that weren't good enough, and as though that weren't beautiful enough, Jesus goes on to describe your joy in a third way. Fullness of joy. This is verses 23 through 24. Jesus goes on to say, I love this. In that day, when I have ascended to be back with the Father, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, the Father will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, but then ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So guys, this might be I love this conversation, but this might be my favorite point in the conversation because you can almost imagine the confusion that's bubbling up to the faces of the disciples as they process this conversation. This is a lot to take in. It might be a lot for you to take in. And so the disciples are thinking, "Um, okay, you're going to give us this overcoming, indomitable joy, but then you're going to leave us? That's what you said, Jesus. You said you're going to ascend. You said you're going back to the Father. You're just going to leave us. How am I supposed to be happy without you here? How am I supposed to be joyful without you by my side? What about when I don't feel joyful? And Jesus says, ask. Ask. That's what I'm doing by going to the Father, disciples. I'm setting up this beautiful arrangement to fill your life full of joy. While I've been with you in the flesh, it's been awesome, you guys. I've really enjoyed my time with you. High five, disciples. It's been fun. We've had a blast. But I'm going to do something better. You've been able to ask me all of your questions and all of your needs face-to-face so far, but when I ascend to the Father, I'm going to stand between you and the Father as your mediator so that you can ask the Father himself through me in my name, and the Father will give you fullness of joy. Now, remember the context. Context, okay? Context is what's going to make this verse pop out to you. Context is what's going to make this and reveal this conversation to be one of the most beautiful conversations in all of scriptures. And the context is quite simply this. Less than 24 hours away, hours away from being abandoned, hours away from the cross, and what does Jesus have on his mind? Not the pain of the nails, Not the grain of the wood with the shadow of the cross looming above him, hours away from suffering, Jesus has on his mind your joy. Amazing. My joy. Fullness of joy, which is a a really uniquely rich Greek word. Fullness. It literally means to, to push out everything else. This, this, this is going to click for you, I think. 
I think this is going to click for you. That's the point of why God ordains deep sorrow and deep pain in your life. Because a joy that doesn't push anything out is empty. Right? A joy that overcomes nothing is a skinny, skim joy. That's, that's not what we're after. But, it, but a joy that overcomes, that dominates all of your circumstances, that is gloriously rooted in Jesus, now that's a joy that's worth a church gathering together and saying, we want to plant the city's most joyful church. We can do this. We can actually do this. God is actually doing this through us right now. I could give you tons of stories in just our little, healthy, young church plant. I'm going to give you one. Um, and for this story, I, I asked Amy McNulty for her permission to tell this story um, because I, I, I couldn't get it out of my head this week, man. I was just, I was prepping and I was getting ready to preach this sermon. And this story about Amy McNulty just kept on coming back to me and saying, teach me, <laughs> preach me. And so Amy wants you to have this story of hers. Some of you know Amy. A lot of you know Amy. Some of you don't, okay? Amy McNulty and, and, and her husband, Mike, they're a really big part of our church, and Amy was diagnosed with cancer a little while back. Now, a few weeks back, when things got a little worse for Amy, I, I, I went to the hospital to visit her. And, and if I can just be totally honest with you guys, I was a little bit freaked out, right? I was just scared. I, I, I was just a little bit scared of the hospital visit because I'm still a young pastor and I've only been doing this for a couple years, and hospitals are scary, right? They're just, the, the lighting in there sometimes is, is dim, and I don't know what's going on in some of those rooms, right? And so I, I'm still at that point where a hospital visit, it, it's just scary to me. And on top of that, I, I'm just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? What if I say the wrong thing? Maybe even worse, what if I have nothing to say? I'm going to tell Amy, man, I'm 29. What am I going to tell Amy? What, what am I going to do for somebody who's had so much taken away from them? How am I going to minister to this person who's going to lack so much joy? And so, you know, I go, I go up to the door and I knock and she says, come in. And I walk in. <laughs> and just immediately, it becomes crystal clear to me who's going to minister to who in this situation. It becomes crystal clear to me who is the person who really needs joy in this situation? It's me. It's so like, I'm not making this up. Like, Amy is in her hospital bed, like, preaching to me. She's, she's explaining to me, she's describing to me what joy is. And she, she says to me, she says, Cole, joy is, she's on a hospital bed. And she says, Cole, joy is not having everything in your, in your, in your life nice or having everything together. Joy is having Jesus. I'm just like, Yes. That girl's my hero, man. I'm like, I'm just thinking, that's what I want. That's, that's the church that I want. That's the parable for Frontier Church, that in the hospital, right, Frontier Church, whether we are healthy or whether we are on a hospital bed, in this world of sorrow and sadness and sickness and death, no matter what, we're on our hospital bed in that moment, rejoicing in Christ and making him look glorious, that glorifies Jesus. That's what we want to be known for. Amen? Man, once you get that, in Christ, in Christ, nothing. Amy has proven this to us right now. In Christ, nothing 
is ultimately working against your joy. And when that clicks, I promise you that by the power of the Spirit, you'll be able to look your sorrow in the face. You'll be able to look at your chronic depression in the face. You'll be able to look your cancer in the face and say, you think you're destroying me, but my Jesus is going to destroy you. All you're doing is providing more pressure, more pressure for my joy. You're just shaking the can so that when Jesus comes back and opens up a can on you, my joy is going to explode. It's just going to heighten my joy. It will overcome it. It is indomitable. It's going to be full. It is in Jesus. That's what we want. So, whew, I'm out of breath. So let me end um, with some commitments from our local church that I think are going to round out and clarify what does it mean to actually pursue wanting to plant the city's most joyful church. I've got a couple. Obviously, I want to do more. <laughs> um, but here are a couple commitments from us as a church. First, we are committed to making your joy in Jesus our organizing principle in decision-making. Here's what this looks like, okay? A lot of churches, they obsess over church growth, and that's not necessarily bad, but when that becomes like the central organizing principle, it gets ugly because if if getting a bigger church is always the goal, then sometimes churches will ignore hard truths and unpopular decisions because it gets in the way of the ultimate goal, which is to get bigger. That's, that's not what we want. And still other churches obsess over theological depth. Now, we love theological depth, and we love doctrinal depth, and we love biblical preaching, and we absolutely 100% value those things. But when those are more important than satisfying your soul in Jesus then sometimes churches can become obsessed with technical jargon, flexing their muscles, and they end up losing their passion for mission and hospitality and people. But if we make joy in Jesus the central organizing principle and we spend our money that way and we make decisions based on what gives us joy in Jesus, we will enjoy Jesus so much that we'll pursue church growth and we'll pursue theological depth. If you aim for joy, you get the other ones. Second, we are committed to training and developing leaders who help lead you into deeper joy in Jesus, okay? So the way this works itself out is you can be the smartest girl at our church or like the most talented dude at our church, but if our church members are more miserable, argumentative, and divisive because of your influence, we're not going to develop you and install you as a leader. That's not what we're doing. We're not planting the city's most divisive church. We're not planting the city's most critical church. So a question that we ask before developing a leader is, are people more satisfied in Jesus when they spend time around her? Are, are people, do people enjoy Jesus more when they spend time around him? Third, we are committed to aiming at your joy in all of our ministry practices. And by all, I really do mean all. But since preaching is one of the things I do, I'll focus on preaching, okay? Um, so you'll notice that our preachers, we want to rightly explain the text to you. We want to even sometimes be a little bit practical or maybe even round some things out for you. That stuff matters to us. But ultimately, we will always aim our preaching at your heart. Because God has beautifully designed joy as the right response of the heart to Jesus that tells the mind, tells the muscles, tells the lungs, tells the will, do whatever it takes to get more of him. If we hit your joy, 
your joy will scream back at your muscles. Do whatever it takes to get more of Jesus. It'll scream to your brain. Do whatever it takes to get more of Jesus. In fact, if you can recall moments in your life when obedience was just the easiest or when being a loving husband or being a skillful mom or loving your enemies, when those times were the most natural, the common denominator in all of those events is what? A heart overflowing with joy in Jesus. That's how these things become possible. I mean, have you ever wondered, like, how in the world did the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, how did he write so much and endure so much and suffer so much and, and plant so many churches and achieve such an amazing theological depth in his life? How did he do it? Well, listen to Paul. Considering his ministry in Philippians 1, he says, I will continue my ministry with you for your joy in the faith. It was his motive. Or even considering his death and suffering in Philippians 2, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I am going to die, I will be glad and rejoice with you all. Which is why Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We're going to aim at that. Fourth, we are committed to helping you see we're committed to helping you see how nothing God says in Scripture and nothing God ordains in your life is arbitrary. All of his commands, guys, all of his demands, all of his law, all of his Scripture, all of what he ordains in life is not designed to take away your joy, but to maximize your joy in Jesus by helping you become more like Jesus who is the most joyful person who ever lived. Jesus is the most joyful person who ever lived. And now he lives in you. That's why it's good news of great joy. So here is the gospel, Frontier Church. The gospel is the good news. <laughs> the good news of great joy that even though we are sad, sorrowful, and sinful, Jesus Christ died in our place. And because we believe that, because we grip that with our hearts, by faith, the most joyful person who ever lived now lives in us. You are full of Jesus. You are literally full of joy in Christ you are joyful, period. How's that for good news? There is now nothing that you need to do in order to achieve more joy. There is nothing you need to fabricate. There is nothing you need to fake. Your joy is held hostage by nothing now. You don't need that nice comment from your wife anymore. You don't need that promotion from your job anymore. You don't need your friends to praise you anymore for you to achieve more joy. Christ has done it. It's in you. What we need is for God to reveal continuously and help us discover what he has already given us in Jesus Christ. Fullness of joy. It's there. Help us fight for it, Jesus. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's there. Because the presence of joy in your soul is as certain as the presence of Jesus in your soul. 
That's good news, guys. So, <laughs> um, so let's do it, right? Let's fight for joy together. Let's sing for joy. Let's take communion for joy. Let's try to plant the city's most joyful church. Pray with me.